Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 7. The perfect word of God. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly. Teach me your decrees and we may rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Amen. Things get better and then they get worse. 
It's certainly been true for Judah in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah warned the nation that the result of their unbelief would be suffering in captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. And then he promised that they would be released from that captivity and restored to God and his promised blessing. But he also told them that wasn't the end of the hardship. Israel came through one captivity, but always felt headed for another. Life felt like a roller coaster, where even in the times of peace, you find yourself just waiting for the downhill that comes next. Isaiah's sermons, though filled with promises of blessing and peace, also require Judah to think about her troubles. He just preached about the day of judgment, the wrath that will come down from God against those who are finally unrepentant. He preaches here about judgment that awaits Israel for her covenantal unfaithfulness. Even the return from exile was somehow bittersweet. In a roller coaster of a life, in a fallen and broken world, what can be done? What can do anything? In lives where things do sometimes get worse, what can be done to make anything better? What can be done to give us any hope that they will be better? James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Now, I love the ESV as a translation, but that verse will always sound off to any of us who learned it in the King James. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We don't talk that way today, but for that verse, it's a pretty good way to talk. <laughs> this morning's passage is the fervent prayer of a righteous man. And we know from history that it was effectual. We see that Isaiah got what he was seeking. God came down to his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And so this morning's passage is an insight into what prayer can do when a righteous person prays. Someone in tune with the holiness and the will of God can do something about this world. They can pray. The Apostle James also tells us to treasure prayer and to expect prayer to work. Do you? Or do you, at least sometimes, like me, struggle even to stir up the energy to pray? It feels like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. It feels sometimes like we're just talking to ourselves. Deep down, we wonder, what can prayer even do? How can a prayer availeth much? Well, let's look. For his part, Isaiah begins with preparation. He prepares for prayer by remembering what God has done. 
63 verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 9 at the end, he lifted them up and carried them all in the days of old. Verse 12, he caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses and divide the waters before them. Isaiah prepares by recognizing that God has acted for the good of his people in the past. And that, that recollection strengthens the faith with which he can ask God to act and do something about the present and the future. The well-known hymn line, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. We don't talk that way today either, but it's a good way to talk. That Old Testament concept of a stone of remembrance. And Ebenezer is a physical marker we can look at and say, I remember what God did in that place. I was in my early 20s when my friend Steve May taught me to think about marking Ebenezer's diligently. We were driving in his truck around Charlotte. He was teaching me the commercial real estate business. When he and Peggy were newlyweds, he was in the office leasing side of the business. And like most newlyweds, money was not in abundance. And and there was a building just off I-77 in Charlotte that he could point to. And since I've noticed, he does point to every time he passes it. And says, that's the building through which God provided for me and Peggy in those early days. Isaiah references several of Israel's Ebenezer's in these chapters. But 63.11 is the big one. The people had been led out of bondage in Egypt. They're on the move. Freedom is right there in front of them. No more making bricks without straw. Until, that is, they encounter 174,000 square miles of some of the hottest, saltiest water on the planet. They can't turn around. They can't get around it. They can't get over it. What are they going to do? Well, you know what happened. And given what God did there, Don't you expect that every time after that, at least for a while, when an Israelite came to the shore of the Red Sea, he would say to himself, I remember. I remember what God did here. Another pastor said the most important part of worship is to call upon God and testify to our confidence in him. That's what Ebenezer's do. That's what the Ebenezer does to Isaiah. It prompts him to remember when God came through. Remember when God came through for my family. Remember when I thought I couldn't go on another day and God acted. Remember when I felt alone and overwhelmed and God intervened. Through remembrance, gratitude, faith, And even hope are firmly in place when we approach prayer. Isaiah's view of God makes him ready for prayer. So what will come next is Isaiah's view of himself and his people. 
For prayers that can do something are grounded in humility. Isaiah's prayer is a little unsettling because he's a little more honest than I would like him to be. He makes no effort to deny his sin or the sin of the people. In fact, he draws attention to the contrast. In verse 8, he says God's expectation was that his children would not deal falsely. But then in verse 10, he says that's exactly what they did. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Isaiah honestly acknowledges their stumbling, their wandering from the ways of God, the notable lack of holiness from a people called holy Set apart by God, they've become like one who is unclean. Even their righteous deeds, he says, are like a polluted garment, repugnant to the Lord. He's honest about their condition. He doesn't try to pretend that he's earned an audience with God. It's not about self-loathing or carrying around guilt that's no longer his to bear, but it is about the sincere, specific recognition of the guilt he and the people have before God. Implicitly or explicitly, that guilt is always the first thing we should be asking God to deal with in prayer. You know it and I know it. How often when we come to God in prayer, we have somewhere in the back of our mind, why in the world would God listen to me? Why in the world would God give me what I'm asking for? We've got to start by asking God to deal with the guilt. One pastor explains the people of God have drifted. They've become less than they used to be. They need renewal. And and one approach of recognizing that is to shy away from prayer. I've got no business coming before God. Look at me. But that's not what Isaiah does. <laughs> Isaiah takes all of that guilt and comes before God and says, Look at me. I'm a mess. I'm guilty. I'm unclean. And that's why I need you so badly. Judah through Isaiah, looks at her circumstances and wonders if God has given them over and given up on them. Verse 17, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants. They, they look at life and they know it's not just their experience of life that is less than they hoped for. Now, in humility, Isaiah recognizes that it's also they who are not living as God made them to be. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to make deals. He just cries out for deliverance. Because deliverance is something that prayer can certainly do. And from that position, his humble heart is able to go even a step further, perhaps the hardest step for many of us. He trusts in the goodness of God. Recognizing that we are sinners, that humility is an important start. 
But beyond that is to recognize that God has already given us much that we don't deserve. God has already been good to us. 63 verse 9, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. If God is, if, if we are to have anything good, if our humility is true and we don't deserve anything good, then God must act out of his loving kindness. If our humility is true, my friend Dick DeWitt, who's with the Lord, used to say, he's a very humble man, and he's a man who has much about which to be humble. If our humility is true, then we recognize any good thing that we have already received must have come from the goodness of God. Not because we deserved it, not because we were owed it, but because God is good. And from that posture, we ask God for everything else. Salvation, forgiveness, blessing, wisdom, restored relationships, peace. We ask God for everything else because whatever it is we seek from God, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We have no rightful claim to lay upon it. And so in prayer, we're casting ourselves on his goodness because we believe and acknowledge before him that there's no other way we would get it. In verse 18, Isaiah prays for salvation from enemies without. We're comfortable with that prayer. He says, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. And we're cheering Isaiah on. Yes, there are those in this world who seek to do evil against us. Consciously or unconsciously, they despise God and they focus that, that anti-love on their neighbors with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to be delivered from them and only God can bring that deliverance. And we say, Lord, deliver us from those enemies without. But do we deserve that deliverance? In the next verse, Isaiah prays for salvation from the enemy within. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. It's a callback to verse 10 when they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. In 64, verses 5 and 6, we sinned. We have all become like one who is unclean. We can't even pray, God, won't you save the good guys from the bad guys? I've met the enemy. And the enemy is us. We are victims of sin and evil in this world. But when we ask God to deliver us from it, we have to remember that we are also perpetrators of sin and evil in this world. When we cry out for deliverance from evil, do you really think we can do so by relying on anything other than God's goodness? Isaiah's appeal is in verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. He doesn't attempt to bargain with God. He doesn't offer God anything in return. He doesn't have reminders of his own good deeds. He doesn't play the comparison game between himself and others. He simply casts himself on the goodness of God. 
He's not denying his or the people's guilt. He just wants to be made clean. It's such a different approach to prayer. Sometimes in our prayers, even when we're asking God for things, our our posture is that we want to be justified. We want God to agree with us that we deserve something. We deserve something to be taken away. We deserve to receive something good because we're better than someone else or something else because we're not as bad as we could be. We deserve it. We've earned it. And Isaiah doesn't play this game. He just casts himself on the goodness of God. The source that has given him everything else good he has in his life. He just wants to be made clean. And that's something prayer can do. There's another thread along similar lines in his prayer. Boy, this one's hard too. Isaiah remains aware that we can't always understand what's best for us. His prayer recognizes that what God knows as good may not seem so good to us in the moment. Finding themselves up against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army breathing down their necks, the Israelites probably didn't think that was a very good moment did they? More than once on that whole journey, they said some form to Moses of, you let us out here to die. What are you doing? This is not good. But Isaiah's prayer acknowledges that God always knows what's happening and that God always does what's good. Verse 12, the Red Sea incident, God is setting things up for his glorious arm to divide the waters. He was making for himself an everlasting name through the miraculous salvation of his people. God is working. And he's always working first for his own glory, which is, because of his promises, for the good of his people. His glory is for our good. He's made us partakers of that glory. We get to share in that glory. And so he's always working for his own glory, which we should see as a good thing. But we don't. Because we're usually thinking about a kind of good for ourselves that may or may not bring glory to God, but it's pretty obviously good for us. And it's just two different perspectives on what's good. When our backs are up against the wall, it doesn't seem good to us. Trouble seems relentless and life feels hopeless. We feel like God has given up on us or given us over to trouble. God has not changed. His glorious arm will be revealed in our suffering and our perseverance through it. Here's what another teacher said about it. He said, what God feels for us, he feels deeply, not superficially or sporadically, but sometimes he withholds from us the experience of his love. Other times he pours out an experience of his love. He doesn't change, but our experience of him does change, and he is the one who changes it. So we must pray. 
changing our experience of God. That's something prayer can do. The, the thing that we're thrashing against, the thing that we're frustrated with, how long, O oh Lord, why do you keep silent? The act of prayer is the very reversal of our grievance. We look at so much happening in the world and in our lives right now, and we have to confess to God that we're very confused and perhaps even hurt by his will. And what we pray is, why don't you will something better for a while? But Isaiah reminds us that God is doing something greater and better and bigger than we are able to see. He's redeeming his own and glorifying himself. And because Isaiah sees that, he prays humbly. He prays trusting God's goodness, even as he laments that their pleasant places have been overrun and the blessings of the covenant have been taken away. You think he doesn't understand how you're having to pray? Do we think we've cornered the market on suffering? Could Isaiah not say, I don't understand this. You promised people land and the land is gone. You promised people rest and the rest is gone. You promised people a king and the king is gone. But he prayed in humble faith. Casting himself on God's goodness. The only thing that had ever worked. We even have an advantage over Isaiah, don't we? Thousands of years later, we can look back and say, if the land on the other side of the Jordan River was the only territory God had given his people, what a shame that would have been. If they had contented themselves with that rest and freedom from those enemies, how much less life would have been. Because by taking those away, God brought about everlasting rest in Christ and a new heavens and a new earth in eternity with him. They couldn't see it. We should. As we endure a world with heartaches and with sufferings, the things that make us ask God, why do you give us these difficulties? We can pray like Isaiah in humility, in confidence in God's goodness, knowing that he is doing something better than we can see. I think those three dynamics are essential to the effectiveness of Isaiah's prayer. But in the end, just as important is the solution he's praying for. If we really want our prayers to do something, the something that we pray for, the something we desire, needs to be something God has already promised to give. Verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is hard for us because we are, by nature, problem solvers. And we look at all the problems, we look at everything that ails us, and we come up with all of these neat and tidy solutions that will fix everything. But to all that ails Isaiah and Judah, he sees only one solution. 
the presence of God with them. When God remembers his people, rends the heavens, and comes down to them, that is when they will have all they need. Three times here he says, at your presence. He repeats, come down, make your name known, come down, you meet him. The whole prayer, writes one pastor, is for God to visit us without holding himself back at all. Notice even how it begins. Just the little word, oh. It's a word of longing. Isaiah fervently desires that God would visit his people. It's not academic to him. It's visceral. Oh, that you would come down. The reason why God's people were suffering, the reason they were confused, the reason they were anxious for the future was that God was hidden up in the heavens. And so Isaiah prayed that he would come down. And in Christ, God did just that. And by word and spirit, God is ever present with us. But, but in our minds, don't things get out of whack because we feel like that isn't true? God, I can't see you. I can't feel you. I can't see that you're in this. I can't see that you would be behind that. I can't see why you would want this for my life. Where are you? What we need is the same thing they needed, a refreshed experience of his presence, the remembrance that he is with us, that he will never leave nor forsake us, that what he is doing in our lives is purposeful and flows out of his goodness. Isaiah knows that awesome and unexpected things come when you let God be God and God comes down and visits his people, for there is no one like him. Verse 4, no one has heard or perceived. No eye has seen a God beside you. There's no other solution. There's no other answer. There's no other hope for the dilemma. Prayer availeth much when the one praying sincerely believes that God is their only hope and that that is a great hope to have. His trust in the goodness of God flows out of every line. O oh Lord, you're our father. We're the clay. You're our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry. He's saying, Lord, don't stay up there. Yes, we're sinful. There's no one who calls your name or rouses themselves. We don't do what we ought to do. And yet, O oh Lord, we're begging you, don't stay up there. Come down here and in your loving kindness, have pity on us. Because if you don't act, nothing good will be done. I suspect that it's in moments of complete helplessness that we offer our most effectual prayers. Strained relationships between friends parents and children or husbands and wives you can get advice and read books and seek godly counsel and you should it's all good but you know this if god does not act nothing good can be done how will i provide for my family how will i provide work how will i put food on the table you can look for a job you can work hard you can overcome laziness and it's good and you should but you should know if god does not act there will be no food 
Nothing good comes until God's goodness gives it to us. And that's why effective prayer comes from the believer who simply wants to be with God. Who knows that God can act. Who trusts God to act for good. It's an act of faith, prayer. It's fervently offered before God in humility because it relies entirely on his goodness. Isaiah knows there's no hope outside of God acting. And so he brings his deepest needs before God in humility, acknowledging that he and the people don't deserve to have those needs met. And acknowledging that if anything good happens, it will be because God alone has acted out of his goodness. There's so many needs. And their times feel so dark. Hope is questionable. The anxiety of life like that is a heavy weight. Isaiah feels burdened for the people. That's why we use the language we use about fear and doubt. We speak of people carrying heavy loads, about burdens being too much to bear. The very language reflects the physical and spiritual toll that these unmet burdens take on us. But prayer can do something about that. Through prayer, at any moment you choose, a weight can come off your shoulders. Isaiah takes things to God that only God can accomplish. That's why they're a heavy weight on our shoulders. It's why they're too much to bear. Only he can do them. And in prayer, we humbly admit before God that we need him, we trust him, and that our hope is in him alone. One of the reformers once explained prayer as nothing other than the opening up of our heart before God to pour our cares, distresses, and anxieties into his heart. It's a transfer. Prayer is a transfer of a burden. One heart to another, a heart that can do nothing about it but be overwhelmed, to a heart that can act out of its loving kindness and bring us deliverance. This healing, this marriage, this progress and sanctification, this provision, this safety, God, these are not things I can control, but you can. So I commit them to you. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to be hopeless. I'm going to faithfully do what you give me the opportunity to do, and I'm going to rely on your goodness. I'm taking this burden out of my heart, and I'm putting it in yours. Behold, please look, we are all your people. He doesn't mean everyone who ever lived. He doesn't even mean all the citizens of Israel. He means everyone who can pray this way. Against them, God has turned away his anger and made them righteous in Christ by faith. That's why they're able to pray fervently. They know what God and his goodness can do. Their own lives are reminders of that goodness. Their own lives are Ebenezer's of what God does in his goodness. And from there, they ask God for more. 
believing that only he can do it and that he will do what is good. That's the prayer that has great power as it's working. That is the prayer that availeth much.